how many ounces in a pound? I don't know. You're the one that refused the metric system. I'll have this argument with you because this is what's blighted Europe. And the metric system is, is a form of tyranny and it bears yeah. no relevance to the real world. No, yes, it's please. probably invented by lizards. Yeah. No, it's worse than by the French. <laughs> Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, the Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofin. And today we're very excited for our guest, Dominic Frisbee author, comedian, musician, and he's been in the Bitcoin space for a really long time. He's uh, the author of Bitcoin, the Future of Money from way back in 2014. Also, Daylight Robbery. I, I really enjoyed that book personally, all about tax. Uh, it sounds boring, but it isn't. And uh, so we're really excited to have him here. So Dominic, welcome to the Freedom Footprint Show. Uh, my pleasure. And thank you very much. And I see your name is Pseudo Finn. So I've been... Uh, given a book on conspiracy theories by my son. And one of the conspiracy theories is that Finland does not exist. <laughs> yeah, it's one of my favorites. I buy that. <laughs> yeah, so is this, tr is, this, is this got something to do with your name? Well, if it doesn't exist, I'm, I'm uh, sitting somewhere that, that doesn't exist, uh, coming, coming right at you from, from Helsinki, Finland. Uh, but my my name is from uh, that that I am from Canada originally, and then there was this guy Justin Trudeau, and so then I went and moved to Finland, which is much better. Uh, okay, well, so Justin Trudeau, as we know, if we're talking conspiracies, we all know what his provenance is. Castro. Well, uh, well, Castro, or possibly Knut Svanholm himself. Bitcoin's answer to Fidel Castro. Do I look that old? Uh, it must be the beard. Anyway, yeah. the, here's the thing about Finland not existing, though. No countries exist. It's all in our heads. Okay. Well, that's a different. That's a different argument. But uh, yeah, that's a different argument, and and one which I buy. But yeah, I've been writing a song about um, conspiracy theories, and it's got the line: "Jay Z's a Satanist. Finland does not exist." Does <laughs> Jay Z exist? Jay Z, you know Jay Z, the whatever he is, a rapper or whatever he is. Yeah, a mogul. Apparently he's Maybe. a Satanist. Oh, really? Good for him. Well, there, there was a South Park episode about Slash not existing, you know, Slash from Guns N' Roses. And that is oh, really? actually, yeah, it was in, in the episode, it's based on an old Dutch ta tale of Uber Sluish or something, <laughs> where, where there's this old folklore tale about this guitarist with a top hat that, that is too good to be true. My favorite is that. The royal family, the English royal, British royal family, are in fact shape-shifting lizards. Wasn't that David Icke's thing? No, it was, he, he thought the Jews were lizards, didn't he? Well, For a while. <laughs> there's, there's definitely, the Illuminati are definitely lizards, but specific, specific, to the, um, specific to the Finnish royal family, uh, the English, British royal family, is they were killed towards the end of World War II by the Luftwaffe, and an alien spaceship that was observing mankind saw this happen and decided to take over their bodies because that would be a good position from which to observe humanity. But they're not very good shape-shifting lizards. And so at night, they have to revert to their alien form. And this is why Prince Charles, now King Charles, didn't want to sleep in the same bed as Lady Diana, because he was going back to his, his alien form. 
Uh, That's why he insisted on sleeping in separate bedrooms. But then one night, Lady Diana came to visit him in the middle of the night, and she discovered the truth uh, about his lizard form, and that is why Lady Diana had to be bumped off. Oh, okay. So if so, technically, if you chop off select parts of the royal body, they will grow out again. Is that the case? I guess so. If lizards do that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> we should try. We should give it a go. Maybe someone did. Yeah, and it, it's because they're not very good shape shifting lizards that the royal family aren't very good looking, and they've all got like big ears and. They all look a bit weird because they're just not very good shape-shifting lizards. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Second yeah. rate. So, sounds plausible to me. Yeah. <laughs> they're the shit coins of shape-shifting <laughs> lizards. This is fantastic. <laughs> this this takes me back to Miami. With the, These conversations were just straight into the stupidity and instantly between me, Do- me and Dominic there as well. So so let's, let's get on with this. First question I have for you, Dominic, is why do why do people in the public sector pay taxes? I don't know. I've never thought about that. And I'm 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 gonna give you two reasons. One is that so that the playing field is level for everyone. That would be one given reason. The other given reason, and the more likely given reason, is to maintain the facade. That's the answer I was fishing for, I guess. Yeah, because if they <laughs> if they didn't, then then questions would be asked. And also, I'll tell you, I'll give you the third reason. It's it's quite a long time since I wrote the book, by the way, so the material's not that fresh in my mind. But one of the arguments is that tax is a system of control. We use taxes to control people, and so you can't have one group of people who are outside the net of control. Even though they're part of the controlling mechanism. Yeah, but they're just worker ants. They're not the lizards. Yeah. That's, I, I, I love the question, though, about taxes in the public sector, because I, I think it's something that everyone should ask themselves. Like, even if you're pro-taxes in general, then that makes absolutely no sense. Like, if you're paying taxes to your employer and your employer pays you back, why, why are you paying... It, the whole thing is it's just such a it's such it's circular and it's a total waste of paper and effort and it's a total waste it's it's a, it, it's not a it's similar to the argument if you if you can print money why do we need to pay taxes yeah that's that's like the follow up question but that's too deep for most people because i don't think most people have any clue how money printing works <laughs> including myself I've written about I've written a film and three books and a weekly blog about it and I'm still not sure I understand how it works. That's that's the thing I was reading a there's a really good guy on Substack called John Carter of Mars which is named after a science fiction character. And he writes the most brilliant stuff. And he was writing something today. I haven't got to the end of the article yet. But he was moaning he used the example of a house. He was basically moaning. He was trying to work out who's in charge because so many of the things that we have in our Western economies are just, they're just there and nobody planned them. Nobody voted for them. They're just there. And he used the example of of a house. And when you're building a house, there are all sorts of building regulations that you have to comply with. And somebody at some point 
in an office somewhere, decided on those building regulations. You know, you, the walls need to be this thick and the supports need to be this. And then somebody else signed off on it. And then those became mandatory. And every house that's built in the country then has to conform to these building regulations. Even though, you know, there might be a house in a certain situation that where the hills in a certain way or whatever, that it doesn't make sense to build to those regulations. And those regulations might not even be that good. There might be better ways of building as, as building evolved and so on. But somebody decided them. They're now set in stone and you can't build anything unless you comply with these regulations. And the person that made those regulations, we don't know who he is. Nobody knows who he is and, or she is, or they are. And, um, they've, they've long since disappeared and they're totally unaccountable for those regulations. And yet the whole country has to abide by those regulations. And then what happens is the next door country is deciding its regulations and it doesn't know what to do. And you're in Belgium and Belgium's got, well, Holland's using these regulations. We may as well just use the ones the Dutch use and they copy them and it goes forward from there. And it's not, it's that, but with everything in the, in the, in the system. And what I want to write to this guy and this guy's going, how did it happen? Nobody planned this. And it's right down to like uncontrolled mass migration. It's just kind of happening and nobody's voted for it. Nobody's been given a choice. And, but the whole thing is in, and what I want to want, what I want to explain to him, the whole thing is enabled by fiat. Without fiat, none of this stuff would have the oxygen because governments would have to live within their means and they would inevitably have to do less. And so they would have to devolve to the free market almost all the time. And then, you know, people wonder why architecture is so bland and uniform. Well, it's probably because of these, it's partly because of metric, but it's also because of these stupid regulations that exist that everyone's building to. And, you know, if, for me, a building is a work of art and you wouldn't give, like, say Van Gogh was painting a picture, you wouldn't give final sign off on the picture to a regulator. You wouldn't go, yeah, well, the, the, the thickness of the paint has to be this and you're only allowed to use seven different colors and whatever. It, it has to be an artistic choice. And so that's why, so when people go, why is architecture so shit? It's fiat. And why is, you know, why do we have these stupid planning laws? Why does this happen? Why does that happen? Almost all of the time, you, it goes back to patient zero, which is fiat. Absolutely. Uh, it's like the saying goes, the, the bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy, right? So when you told that story, I, I have a similar story that a friend told me in Amsterdam about a friend of his that was tired of uh, applying and getting denied, applying for stuff for his house and for his company and getting denied all the time. This is tackling Portuguese bureaucracy, which is the same as everywhere else, but in a different shape. But worse, but with a Latin accent. So he wanted to install a window on the upper floor of his house, but he was absolutely 100% sure that his application would be denied. So he sent in an application for removing a window instead, which was of course denied. So, and then he installed the window, which I think is genius. <laughs> and they didn't, they never checked to see, they never checked to see if the window actually existed. Of course not. That would have cost them money and time and effort. Like they, uh, why would they? 
His, oh if God. the application is denied, he said, uh, oh, he sent an angry email back or something. Oh, okay then. So if you follow that logic, let's say you've got some land and it doesn't have planning permission and you applied to have the planning permission removed and they denied it, then you've got planning permission. Yeah, you could build a golf course or something. Yeah, and then you go, then you go. I want to take down that house, and they go, no, it's a thing of beauty or whatever. And then, uh, and they go, no, you can't take it down. So then you've got to put it back up again. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love the idea. Take, you should get AI to do pictures of the house that you want to take down. This could actually be a movement, you know, if we could get people in every country to start doing this, just applying for the exact opposite of what you're actually trying it's to achieve, so getting it denied and then doing it anyway. I love it. I love it. So, like, let me ask you two gents a question. So, I discovered what fiat money meant and the evils of fiat in about 2005, 2006. And the answer to fiat at the time was gold. And so that's why I've always had this very soft spot for gold, which most Bitcoiners haven't got time for. But one thing I've learned is that, you know, as Keynes said, the system can remain irrational. Well, a, a lot longer than you can remain solvent. I've, I've been listening to predictions of hyperinflation since forever, but it, it never, it never actually materializes. But then, you know, the pound has lost a third of its value since 2020, just in three years. We've had cumulative inflation of 32.5% or something. So that's a third loss of purchasing power in three years in the pound. They should call it, they should call it the compound. <laughs> well, the, the inverted compound. But, the, but where, does, where does, like, what do you, what's your views of, of collapse and hyperinflation and all the rest of it? Well, it is happening. It's just not happening in uh, currencies that are that close to the, closely tied to the dollar. So the same thing happened to the both the Swedish and the Norwegian krona. Like uh, the Swedish krona has lost forty percent against the euro in ten years, and the the last seven percent in six months. The Swedish krona. The Swedish krona. Why is that? Because they've been printing like mad. The, the Swedish Riksbank, which is the oldest central bank in the world, they have been printing like mad, even before COVID. Uh, they, they, uh, the, the negative interest rates, Sweden were right on top of that. Have you been printing to pay for all this immigration? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, well, sorry, to pay for the welfare which supports the immigration. I, I think it's hard to see that parallel directly for people, but of course it plays a role. I mean... Yeah, why? Why wouldn't it? If you need to, if you need the state to buy uh, to to build houses and pay for them, then of course that money is. Yeah, well, the state's going to and the schools and the hospitals and the blah blah and the welfare and blah blah blah. Yeah, but but what I'm saying is that all the other currencies, like the, there's a lot of smaller currencies around Europe and even worse in Africa and, and um, South America, they're hyperinflating all the time, right? It's just that we outsource the hyperinflation to. To other countries, well, Turkey and Argentina, but they're always hyperinflating. There's nothing new. No, but but I'm, I'm saying like if you take if the dollar, which is also inflating. I mean, the way I see it is the productivity in the world is going up, and it, 
pro- productivity is increasing all the time. Like it's sort of exponential. Sort of exponential is a weird word, but yeah. And the money printing has to keep up with that in order to uh, uphold the illusion of stable prices and a bit more in order to have some inflation, the 3%. And then when something like the lockdowns happen, then they need to print like mad for a couple of years. And then inflation is all of a sudden, then productivity does not accelerate at the same rate as it used to. But I see it as like, yeah, people have been predicting hyperinflation since at least 2005, as you say. But there's always a new technology to help fuel the increasing productivity of absolutely everything. I mean, in 2005, people didn't have smartphones, right? Which have, uh, yeah, helped everyone be better at everything to a remarkable rate. So I think this AI revolution might save the central bankers for another 10 years, like because, because it's, it's making everything, the marginal cost of production of everything so much cheaper. So they can, they can kick the can down the road or, uh, I, I think a more suitable metaphor is roll the snowball down the hill for 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 quite long before it crashes. So um, the 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 increased gains from improved te- technology offset the money printing, basically offset the hyperinflation. Yeah, that's the way I see it. I, I think that's the way. That's similar to an answer you'd get from many of my friends. I've just come back from the states. It, it felt really expensive. Like in 2007, it was $2 to the pound. Now it's $1.20. You know, so that's, what is that? 40%? Yeah, so full. And then on top of that, you've got the fact that Amer- food is expensive in America. Yeah. I don't know how they all get so fat because food is not cheap. Well, they're, they have the... Th- They've doubled their wealth in comparison to us in 10 years, right? Yeah. I tell you what, they, it's not so bad in California, but I was in Louisiana for a bit. And, you know, when you go to places like the airports and stuff like that, and you just see folk from everywhere, that nation is being poisoned by its food. Yep. On a, on, on an enormous scale. It's like if I was writing a sort of Lord of the Rings allegory of everything that's going on, one of the things would be all the people in the free lands have been poisoned because that's that would be one of the, like, everywhere you look, there is barely, so, like you go in Europe, there's quite a few fat people, you know, overweight people. And, but um, there's also some, you know, very slim people as well. And I think generally speaking, the food is less poisonous in Europe than it is in America. It's less processed. But it's I've I've been reading a lot about seed oils and it's it's all those oils they put in it in the food. Yeah, this this is an interesting topic as well. Uh, I think this is such a hard one though because there's so many factors playing in. It's kind of hard to see clearly on this. I mean, the the fact that they're they're uh, they, you need a car to get anywhere in America. Yeah, there's like the, there's no Nobody sidewalks or p- pavements to use a more British term. That's uh, that must factor in. Uh, but I saw some. I, I don't remember where I saw this, but it was an interesting thread about you know uh, obesity in general across the world, and it's it's getting higher in most places, but nobody really knows why because there 
cities on higher altitudes, it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's on a plateau and doesn't have any hills or anything in them, but but cities on uh, in higher altitudes uh, on a higher altitudes apparently have uh, way way lower obesity levels. Yeah, metabolism's the metabolism's faster at altitude. Yeah, that that might be it, or it might have to do something with the water. Who knows? Like. I don't know what it is, but but uh, it's a very strange epidemic, like the obesity, because Americans didn't used to be this fat, like uh, not to this extent. You look at pictures in the seventies; they were not this fat. I mean, they were fatter than us. Yeah, but like it's it became a thing in the mid to late seventies. Uh, it started to happen, and I do, I don't believe people are greedier now than they were thirty or forty years ago. We're just, we're the same people that we were. So something in the diet has changed and I'm sure it's those industrial oils. But yeah, altitude is like, I I proposed a TV program once, which was a load of overweight celebrities uh, go trekking in the Himalayas and um, watch the weight fall off them and watch how they deal with walking in the Himalayas. And it's, it's partly because they wouldn't be eating shitty Western food. It's partly because they'd be eating healthy, unprocessed yeah, Nepalese food, and it's partly being at altitude and taking exercise. Now, that sounds like a costly program to make, though, because you'd have to bribe them, I guess. No, you, you would be cheap because you'd be filming outdoors in Nepal. And the overweight celebrities are probably desperate for attention. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And they're also desperate to lose weight. Not all of them. Yeah, well, most of them. <laughs> but it was just a casual observation of America is, is one, it's not cheap. It felt really expensive. Like it's very hard to go and have a meal with a couple of drinks and pay less than $100 a head or no, less than $75 a head. And yeah, that's weird. And it was, it was expensive and the people have been poisoned. They sure have. And you say it happened somewhere in the years after 71? That's when it started. Well, there you go. <laughs> Might be a connection there. Yeah. Yeah. As, as Safe Dean says, it's fiat food. Absolutely. And it's when it's, it, it's this classic example. When, when we were talking before about planning regulation, building, building stipulations, it's the same with the regulation of the food industry. Like somebody makes decisions. Like if I run a restaurant, okay, and I want to run a successful restaurant, it's not in my interest to poison people. It's in my interest to feed them really well. But yet we have to have these food regulations to make sure that blah, 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 blah. And then the food regulations come in and then, you know, the industrial oil companies, the seed oil companies l- lobby the food regulation people. And then suddenly, you know, industrial oils are, are good for you and, and animal fats are bad for you. Even though we've been eating animal fats perfectly well, thousands of years probably since even before we were humans we've been eating animal fats absolutely uh, so glad you brought up restaurants because i have a fantastic story from the my 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 brother's the head chef at the restaurant and near where we grew up and uh, they had the uh, health authority visit them and it was like eight people to check one restaurant all government employees you know with filling out forms and they didn't pass the test. So they had a couple of things they needed to fix before they could get the okay stamp from this authority. 
But the next day they booked a table for all eight of them. And I find that's so hilarious. It was good enough for them, <laughs> but not good enough for the rest of the population. And I suspect that's not the first in instance that something like that has happened with health authorities. That's like the Nazis closing your restaurant down, but, but, but before they close it down, they're going to have dinner. Yeah, same thing. <laughs> I, I usually tell me, like, the word Nazi is being thrown around a lot. I, I actually meant Germans in World War II. I was talking uh, yeah, yeah, specifically yeah. about Germans in World War II. Yeah, <laughs> and it, to me, it's pretty simple. Like, if you don't want to be a Nazi, don't be a nationalist and don't be a socialist, and then you're fine. That's yeah, but socialists don't like it when you call Nazis socialists. No, even though it's in the name. Mm. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, we we we're talking about taxes. Yeah, that's daylight robbery is in, uh, interesting. Like, can you can you explain the title? Because I think there's a story about an actual actual thing how how taxes do stuff to people, which was not the original intent of the tax. So. Yeah, so around about the time the Bank of England was formed, uh, after the um, Swedish Riesbank, we had just had a thing called the Glorious Revolution, where the king had been deposed and we had this new king, William of Orange. And in order to ingratiate himself with the people, he got rid of the most despised tax in the country, which was a hearth tax, which was basically a tax of fireplaces. So... You would have tax inspectors come around to your house and count the number of fireplaces you had, and then you would have to pay a tax on each fireplace. And it, it was considered a, an invasion of the Englishman's sacred privacy. And so they abolished the tax to make themselves popular. Then, of course, they had no money, and he had wars to fight. So somebody came up with this idea, but they had the infrastructure in place to collect the half tax. So somebody came up with this idea, instead of taxing fireplaces, they would tax windows. And the same people who went into your house to count the number of fireplaces you had, they could just walk past your house and count the number of windows. It's obviously a very hard tax to avoid because the windows are there in plain sight. Uh, it's kind of a fair tax because the more windows you have, the richer you are. So it's considered a, uh, you know, a progressive tax. The wealthier you are, the more you pay. But of course, it's not that simple. And people in the countryside tended to have more windows than people in cities. And, uh, and so it was unfair on people from the countryside. And then they started building new homes with fewer windows. And in the cities, at this point, a lot of people were moving to the cities for the Industrial Revolution. They were moving from the countryside to the cities. And unscrupulous landlords on whom the tax fell, would build these huge tenement blocks with no windows at all. And so thus did they avoid paying the tax. And this was considered, this made all the illnesses in the Industrial Revolution in the cities, cholera, typhoid, all the rest of it, much, much worse because they were made worse by these damp, cramped, windowless dwellings. And there were campaigns to get rid of this tax for decades. And there were scientific studies were done that proved that the tax would make you, made you people sick. And it was contributing to the illness of the nation for decades. Eventually, in 
1850-something or 1840-something, 150 years, over 150 years since the tax was first imposed, they finally got rid of it. But when they got rid of it and they were having the debates in Parliament, they would cry, daylight robbery, daylight robbery. And that's because in blocking up their windows, people were being robbed of their daylight. And that's, so that's where that expression is said to come from. That's beautiful and tragic at the same time, of course. They should have just broken the windows because that's good for the economy, I hear. <laughs> I don't think they had glass windows at that point. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a reference to Bastiat. Yeah, exactly. Uh, look it up, people. And like, subscribe, and brush your teeth. All right. You might have noticed that we've recently partnered with Amber App. After our episode with Izzy, their CEO and our close friend, we knew we would have to partner with them in some way. If you haven't seen our episode with Izzy, definitely go check it out. You'll see why it's such a great fit. And honestly, they're following the orange glowing light like Izzy always says. And that's exactly what we try to do here at the Freedom Footprint Show. The big news about Amber App is that on Jan 3, 2024, they're going to be launching their version 2.0. I've seen some of the screenshots and it looks fantastic. They're going to be including a non-custodial on-chain wallet, an anonymous lightning wallet, a fiat wallet, and finally, it's going to be an exchange, of course. It's going to be just this super app. They're also going to be launching globally. Everyone's going to be able to use it. We're really excited about all that. Stay tuned with us and you'll hear all about it. And for now, check out their website, amber.app, and the episode with Izzy to find out more. Next up, Wasabi Wallet, the privacy by default, open source, non-custodial Bitcoin wallet with CoinJoin built in. It's the easy to use, comprehensive, affordable way to make your coins private. And the best part is they've been making huge improvements to the app. They're really focusing on the user experience, adding advanced features for power users. They just keep getting better. You send your coins to your Wasabi wallet and they get combined with loads of other coins using the Wabi Sabi protocol. So they're private on the other end. Your tracks are covered so you can work on expanding your freedom footprint without worrying about your privacy. So check out wasabiwallet.io and download Wasabi today. Yeah. What else can we say about taxes? Like what is, in, in your mind, what, what's the most stupid tax that uh, is being uh, extracted from people at the moment? Uh, well, in the UK to begin with, but in, in general also, what, what, what's the stupidest tax? The one that does the most harm? Well, the one that does the most harm is income tax. And that's responsible for about 50% of government revenue worldwide, income tax. Because if you're young and you're starting out with nothing, all you have is your labor. And we're taxing you over the course of your life, roughly 50% of everything you ever earn will be taken from you by the government in taxes, excluding inflation. It's more if you include inflation. 50%. 50% of everything you ever earn is taken from you. Now, the life of the medieval serf was that he gave half his working week to his lord and the other half of the working week he was allowed to till his own land till till soil himself or he was given land to till so in terms of time allocated 50% to your lord and 50% you keep yourself it's exactly the same obviously the working conditions are somewhat better because of technology and all the rest of it but nevertheless 50% of your labor is owned and if you were a slave, 
then 100% of your labor is owned. In fact, you don't even own your own body. And if you're a, you live in a totally anarchist society, then none of your labor is owned. And we're at 50% in, in the developed world. Give or take. But anyway, because of inflation, obviously assets, we live, we live in a, a val- in, a, in a society where capital is much more valuable. Assets are much more valuable than, than labor. You know, with mass migration and all sorts of other things, the, the price of labor has been kept down and assets, meanwhile, have inflated in price. And I think since 1971 in the UK, house prices have gone up 70 times, whereas salaries have only gone up 22 times. So say 20 times. So house prices have gone up three and a half times as much as salaries have in the UK. And that's because... There's all sorts of reasons for that, but, you know, globalization and all the rest of it. But if you import lots of cheap labor, then it's, then you're, you're, you're going to keep labor costs down. Whereas, you know, you, we create money through debt. You know, when you, when you issue debt, debt gets created. We invented the mortgage. Loads of money gets created. It goes straight into the housing market. The more money there is in a market, the higher prices go. Uh, and so house prices can inflate. And then what further inflates house prices is that there's a limit on what can get built because of planning regulations. So we've created this world where houses go up at three and a half times the rate of sal- as salaries. And we wonder why there's such inequality between generations. And we wonder why the younger generation is so nihilistic. Well, they can't start a family because they can't afford a fucking house. But it's not just that. Not only do we, have we got this society that's geared around asset ownership? We tax people on their labor heavily and constantly. Just constantly, your money, that half of your labor's been taken. So not only are asset prices rising, you're working to, to, to get an asset and it's just getting further and further out of reach because the money you're paid in is, is being taken from you. And then on top of that, the money you're being paid in loses value anyway to inflation because it's fiat. And so it's just like a triple whammy. And like it, it totally fucks the young. And we wonder why we've created this culture of where kids just want to go around and into an art gallery and, you know, throw oil at paintings and, and stop capitalism and all the rest of it. Well, can you blame them for having such a nihilistic view? when they've literally got no stake in society because they can't buy a house. No, they never experienced capitalism and neither has anyone else. Uh, so that wasn't real capitalism. That should be a slogan. I mean, I, I'd say that, uh, so capital gains taxes or taxes on profits, like the, the example I love to give is uh, you, if you have like... What is profit? It's that you provide your good or service to more people and therefore you earn more. So like if you have an apple farmer who has one apple tree, he can sell apples to X amount of people. If if the business is successful, he can afford to buy a second apple tree the second year to uh, to feed the double amount of people. The third year, four apple trees. And the, the, the fourth year, eight apple trees. So it's exp- exponential growth which simply cannot happen if you tax people 50% because they never get to the second tree. So I think that's uh, that's 
uh, and people think uh, like taxing the rich is always okay, but this is what that does in, uh, in my uh, in my mind at least. You, you're missing out on these all compound effects and exponential growth that could have happened, and that's impossible to see because you're living in the in the timeline you're living in, so you never see the alternative cost, and that's. I think that the, the the fact that you can't see what isn't there is is what makes people fall for it over and over again. You have to tax capital and labor equally, and if you don't, then one will acquire greater value than the other. And we don't tax wealth. I'm not saying we should tax wealth, by the way. We don't tax wealth, but we do tax labor, and so it's inevitable that you have an uh, inequality as a result. It just like. The tax system causes wealth inequality. That's what people don't understand. It's supposed to be there to equalize life chances. It has the reverse effect, causes wealth inequality. This ties in so well to a very interesting observation I heard about uh, blockchain statistics, like the Glassnode data, which is showing that Bitcoin addresses with one Bitcoin or less in them are growing in numbers. While Bitcoin addresses with 10,000 Bitcoins or more in them are shrinking in numbers. And if you do the quite plausible assumption that many of these addresses are just people trying to accumulate a whole Bitcoin, like many people have, there's like a million addresses with one Bitcoin in them. And there probably can never be two million addresses with one Bitcoin in them because it's just not enough Bitcoins. But the thing that it's doing is that it's actually redistributing wealth by doing the very opposite of what those claiming to be redistributing wealth are doing. So by doing the exact inverse of what a wealth redistribution scheme would do, you actually redistribute the wealth. And I find that insanely fascinating. Yeah, I do as well. How many addresses are there with 10,000 or more Bitcoins? I don't know, but we uh, we could look it up somehow. Uh, well, most of the wealth are in this big whale addresses. So th- that's still the thing. But the thing with Bitcoin is that there's no other way of getting any usage out of those Bitcoins than to spend them and buy stuff from other people. Like you can't leverage the system in any other way. Maybe in this transitional phase that you can you know, uh, manipulate the market a bit and sell off and buy at a cheaper price. But that gets harder and harder every time you try it because the market won't fall for it next time uh, as hard. So so it's, it's very interesting to see how like a very pure free market with sound money is just doing, it, it's getting the results that the socialists claim they want by doing the exact opposite. Yeah, I had an argument the other day. Somebody was saying Bitcoin causes inflation because the price keeps going up. <laughs> so people keep, so people are, so people are taking on debt or whatever to, to buy it and uh, they're creating money and therefore it is causing inflation. Well, yeah, I hope it keeps on doing that. So people, more and more people wake up. So in my book, Bitcoin, the future of money, which I wrote in 2013, 2014, I wanted to be the guy who discovered who Satoshi was. And I devoted probably almost half the book to figuring out who he was. You know, I spent hours reading the cypherpunk mailing list from the late 90s through to about 2005, 
trying to find signs and clues. And, you know, it was really hard to figure out. There's only a handful of people that can have been because of the extraordinary knowledge that's required. It's not just you need an extraordinary breadth of knowledge, but it's also an extraordinarily specific knowledge at the heart of mathematics, cryptography, monetary history, law, even things like databases, C++ coding. You know, there's just this bizarrely specific knowledge, but you all, and PR, like Satoshi must be, if nothing else, he's the greatest PR genius ever. And so I was trying to figure out who it was. And, and so I love just sitting around with Bitcoiners talking into the early hours about who it, who it might've been and why it might've been this guy and why it might've been that guy. In fact, I was just in New Orleans last week and I was having this, I was sat there with Lynn Alden and we both had a few glasses of wine and we were just sat there, you know, discussing who Satoshi might've been. Anyway, I was having the same conversation at Michael Saylor's house in Miami. Do you remember that evening, Knut, where we went to Michael Saylor's yeah, house? Yeah, we, we, uh, we had uh, Wagyu Tomahawks and talked about who Satoshi was. It was great fun. And there was this dude sat on my right, and I still, I've forgotten his name. I exchanged emails with him. At one point, we were going, you know, I think it was Nick Zabo because of there, and I think it's Hal Finney because of there, and I think it's this guy because of there. And, and he just went, well, it might have been put there by aliens. And I was like, what? They said, yeah, maybe it was from God or from another planet. And, and I was like, yeah, it's like the most plausible explanation as to, as, because nobody could have done, there just wasn't anyone who was clever enough to invent something that brilliant that's had this impact and got this potential. And he was saying aliens put it there to give mankind a chance of saving itself. And I was literally like, that's the best explanation I've heard. And I wish I'd thought of that when I was writing the book. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you're alluding to Satoshi being a lizard here, aren't you? Uh, no, no, he, uh, he wasn't illumined. Satoshi wasn't Illuminati because the Illuminati are all evil. So, so Satoshi was, yeah, Satoshi was, no, there's no such thing as a good lizard. You know what my favorite, favorite, like, like, favorite thing to imagine satoshi was that that ju just to pop a hole in all this uh uh devout devout christian view of who it was so the the uh, american conservatives want to paint the, this picture of satoshi as this uh messianic figure and the second coming of christ and whatnot so what if it's a guy in finland who loves death metal and had eight abortions like but <laughs> that would be something, I think. What's his name? Marty, Marty Malmo, whatever his yeah, name yeah. is. <laughs> shout shout out to reference. Yeah, shout out Marty. No, but I, I, I kind of love the thought of Satoshi being someone completely different than we think it is. Like, because, because of the, the wonderful irony and, but imagine, uh, and I, I do think he's yeah. dead. He's like, lost I think his it's keys. very, I think it's very he's, plausible he's that he's dead. He's he's drinking. He's taken to the streets and he's drunk because he's got several billion dollars worth of bitcoins and he can't get his hand on them because he's lost his seed phrase. And he's just sat there screaming at people who walk past him. I'm Satoshi Nakamoto. Nobody believes him. <laughs> <laughs> he, I think he's dead. Yeah, because like 
that level of commitment for that many years. Well, uh, and I think this is also a, 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 an interesting subject because I see a risk with painting this picture of Satoshi as this messianic figure, this superhero, this superhuman. Like putting him on a pedestal has the risk of, you know, making him into this. Like people could use that in the future. That could lead to another Prince Charles or King Charles at some point. You know, this. Uh, do you see what I mean? Like that. This when people think that other human beings are so excellent, so they're worthy of uh, something. Like it becomes the Dalai Lama, and then he can go and, uh, uh, you know, make out with fourteen-year-old boys without people noticing until too late, and and like or the Pope or whatever, like these, these figureheads of organizations that aren't necessarily good for humanity. Like, I, I think no one should be put on a pedestal like that. I take your point, but it's slightly different with him because he's faceless. Yeah. Yeah. He's more Holy Ghost than Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I buy that. I just think that's a, it's probably not a lizard or an alien or God or anything like that. It's probably a guy in a basement somewhere. And that guy may not agree with anything that the people who put him on a pedestal are saying about him. So, so that's, that's what I, that, that's what I find. Like, I see a risk there that I never, I never hear people talk about that. I, I get, I think there's often a lot of crossover between invention and discovery. And a lot of the time when you discover something, people say you invented it and you're like, no, like did, did somebody invent the wheel or did they discover the wheel? Did somebody, you know, you could say the same about antibiotics or the engine or anything. Now did wheat, did mankind invent wheat? Did mankind invent paper or did we discover it? Well, wheat domesticated us and not the other way around. Well, exactly. But I mean, it's still, whatever it is, that grass, we, is, is, it's been important to our evolution. But, you know, a lot of, a lot of invention happens quite accidentally. Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin because he didn't clear up his desk properly. Yeah. He would have never done so if he had listened to Jordan Peterson, in other words. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> um, you know, Christopher Columbus discovered America, but he wasn't looking for it. He was looking for a route to the, the, the India and China, wasn't he? You know, America happened by accident. That's the so Vikings. Cool. America happened by accident. Yeah. But the, the the Basque the Basque fishermen knew about America. Because they were going up, they were going, they were catching a wind at a certain time of year and going up there and fishing for cod and bringing back the cod and selling it into European markets. And they knew it was there and they were, it was, a, they kept it a secret because it was their business. And, um, so yeah, the, the, uh, Columbus should have done the same. It would have been much better for the history of the world. But anyway, that was it. That... But in any case, so much of invention is, is accidental. I think. The guy who invented plastic was a Danish hobby inventor, and he was trying to find a way, because at the time, they, to insulate wire, they would use 
um, crushed beetles. They would use something made out of crushed beetles and it was a certain type of crushed beetle. You could only get it in China or something stupid like that. And so he was looking for a way to insulate wires that was cheaper than these crushed beetles. And that's how we got plastic. The uses of plastic way exceed insulating electric wire. And it might be that with Bitcoin, you know, so many things have just fallen into place with, with Bitcoin. It, even like you, what you were describing with the distribution of the coins from the whales to the, the increasing one Bitcoin addresses and the falling 10,000 Bitcoin addresses. So maybe a lot of what's happened with Bitcoin is not invention, it's discovery. Yeah. And maybe a lot of it wasn't planned. It's just worked out that way because of the bandwagon that the invention has created and the number of geniuses that have been like one of the reasons I advocate owning Bitcoin is that you are leveraging the combined IQ of the Bitcoin community. And it's a very high combined IQ. There's a lot of very clever people in Bitcoin. At least 80. Yeah. <laughs> But do you know what I mean? Whereas, you know, if I compare Bitcoin to mining or something, the IQ levels just, they're not the same. There are some very clever people in mining and there's some brilliant promoters and there are some brilliant geologists and so on, but they're not like supercomputed technical geniuses like you find in, in crypto, in Bitcoin. And, and, you know, but that combined IQ has, has helped make things work and just guided it in a certain way. So, yeah. So maybe. He just stumbled across something, uh, worked out, you know, solved the Byzantine general's problem, solved the problem of double spending with, with the blockchain. And then everything just literally snowballed from there. And it wasn't planned. It's just, he, he opened the portal, he opened the Pandora's box and everything else has just happened because it was going to happen as soon as that portal was opened. I think this is very plausible, like something like that. And it's, it's, I wrote about it in one of my books, like it's one of the most quoted passages from it, like the absolute mathematical scarcity and a, a sufficiently distributed decentralized network was a discovery rather than an invention. It could only be discovered once since the very thing discovered was resistance to replicability itself. So and what I'm trying to say with that is that it was more akin to the discovery of the Americas than or the discovery of the wheel, since you can only do that once. It uh, you can't repeat the the thing. And another uh, another point about yeah, the yeah, wheel. Like the guys who invented the wheel, they didn't know we were going to have these four wheeled Formula One cars that can drive at three hundred miles per hour, and and you know we'll be using wheels to take off and fly around the world and stuff. They didn't know that. They were just trying to find a way of getting their, you know, their their whatever it was their their plants from the field to the house or whatever it was yeah and uh first time i was in mexico we we went to see uh some of these old maya cities like oxmal for for instance and the funny thing i learned about the maya culture is that they had rotating tables so they had the circular shape was everywhere but they never for thousands of years figured out that they could put them vertically instead of horizontally and thereby roll stuff on so so they had sleds just carrying a, a fucking sushi table a big 
big uh, granite rock for a sushi table. So they knew how to spin it around. They knew how to make circular things, but they never put them vertically for thousands of years. And that's that's just mind blowing to me. So like, what what are we doing today? What what are we missing that is absolutely obvious in hindsight? Like that's what that's the thought that uh, wakes in me. Yeah, I had a I had a good conversation about something similar. They were saying, um, you know, for years we carried bags, we carried our suitcases, and then somebody occurred to somebody to stick wheels on the bottom, and we all started wheeling our suitcases. And then suddenly every suitcase now has got wheels on it. And you're like, what were we doing before? Why did it take us so long to put a wheel on a suitcase? And, and the question is, what are the, what's something blindingly obvious that needs to be done that nobody's doing? I can think of loads of things at the government level. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, why are we, what taxes? It's a flawed yeah, well, idea. It's there like, you go. But, but in terms of, practical levels of things around us and ways of doing things. Yeah, I'm not sure. The show is also sponsored by Orange Mill app, the Bitcoin-only social network where you can stack friends who stack sats. You can connect with your favorite Bitcoiners on the app, make local connections, and even connect with Bitcoiners around the world. You can see what's going on in your local area and connect with Bitcoiners around you. I've been to multiple events organized on Orange Mill app, and they brought Bitcoiners together from all over. And now with group chat, it's easier than ever to stay in touch with all of your Bitcoin friends. The best part is that you know it's high signal. There's no spam on Orange Pill app because everyone pays to be there. So download Orange Pill app on Apple or Android, send me or Canoe to DM, and start building your local network of Bitcoiners today. Next up, the Bitcoin way. Their mission is to onboard, educate, and remove barriers to taking self-custody of your Bitcoin. They cover everything from cold wallets to nodes, no KYC Bitcoin purchases, inheritance planning, payments, and more. Whether you're new to Bitcoin or you're an experienced Bitcoiner looking to expand your freedom footprint, or you know someone who this sounds perfect for, the Bitcoin Way has something for you. They have a skilled team, well-versed in the Bitcoin space, and their goal is to make all the complexities of Bitcoin as straightforward as possible for everyone. And the best part is you can get started with a free 30-minute call with their team. Go to thebitcoinway.com slash contact for more info. Our newest sponsor is Geyser. They are the portal to the creator economy on Bitcoin. On Geyser, creators can monetize their work through their communities in a social and engaging way, and supporters can send sats to their favorite projects. Geyser has also recently integrated with Zaps and Podcasting 2.0, so every Zap sent to a Geyser address shows up on the Geyser page. We have a Geyser fund ourselves. It's the best way to support our show directly with Bitcoin. So whether you're a creator or a supporter, check out Geyser at geyser.fund today. I just bought a load of Silver Britannias and uh, they're sitting on my desk. I haven't opened them yet. Do you want to see a Silver Britannia? Absolutely. What is that a shift coin? The reason why gold and silver bugs hate Bitcoin so much is that it did everything that silver was supposed to do. That's why... You know, they they had the they had the right argument, but the wrong vehicle. Why were they convinced that silver would do that? Because silver had a has a history of money. It's incredibly undervalued relative to gold. Oh, I've got the King Charles. I've got King Charles silver Britannias. Pound <laughs> sterling. There you go. I'm going to hold it up to the camera, and there you can see King Charles Britannias. All right, looks a bit like the Swedish krona. Yeah, and that's the silver. That's the silver ounce. That would have been. Um, there's Britannia. 
the goddess Britannia who ruled the waves. And there's King Charles. He is such a knobhead. But anyway, I'm neither a monarchist nor an anti-monarchist, but I know a knobhead when I see one. Do you know how, how many how many uh, pounds would you have to pay for a pound of sterling silver today? Uh, how many ounces in a pound? I don't know. You're the one that refused the metric system. I'll have this argument with you because ah. this is what's blighted Europe. And the metric system is is a form of tyranny and it bears yeah. no relevance to the real world. No, yes, it's please. probably invented by lizards. Yeah. No, it was worse than by the French. <laughs> please explain. We know why the French are worse than hey, lizards. Hey Siri, but... how many ounces in a pound? There's 16 ounces in a pound. Makes perfect sense. Uh, hey Siri, how much is an ounce of silver in pounds? Here's what I found. So an ounce of silver is about 20 quid. So it's not that bad. 160, 16 times 20 3,200. Yeah. 3,200, not 320. Newt is good at math. It's 320. Uh, 320, of course. Sorry. Yeah, so 320 is... Yeah. A, a, a pound of sterling silver would be 320 pounds. So that's not that bad, really, when you think about it. But but that's because silver's just so undervalued. And how did that happen exactly? Let's get back to the metric thing, but, but why is silver so undervalued exactly? Is it, is it the relation of the, the supply of silver and the supply of gold, something like that? Well, once silver used to be money, so it was very desirable because it was money and it's lost that role. I think the words silver and money are interchangeable in like a hundred different languages, argent in French, plata in Spanish, silver, sterling silver. Um, um, and there's 15 times as much silver in the Earth's crust as there is gold. Yeah, so it's a stock-to-flow ratio. Yeah, and the historic ratio... One, one, uh, you could get one gold coin for 15 silver coins, and that was throughout history. But now the ratio between the two is like 90, 80 or 90. And um, it's mainly because silver's now produced as a byproduct of, in, of zinc and lead mining mostly. And it's just sold. They just sell it without trying to get the best price for it. And there's also a lot of rumor about the silver price being manipulated down i'm not sure that if that's true or not but um yeah it's that's that's historically why okay so let's unpack this so so silver is worse than gold because of the uh, stock to flow ratio uh and you say that uh, a pound of sterling silver today would cost you 32 pounds 320 oh 320 uh I, yeah yeah uh <laughs> yes this is why I wrote a book with mathematics in the title. Anyway, um, that means that the money printing since the term pound sterling was invented or discovered, like I think a pound sterling, it's one of the oldest, if not the oldest currency in the world, right? Yeah, still in use, yeah. Yeah, uh, but, but was it a pound of sterling silver you could you could exchange it for in the beginning? One libra. It, it wasn't, it wasn't, that you could exchange it, it was a pound of sterling silver. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, and that was like how many years ago? 
500? Uh, until uh, Isaac Newton. Okay. So, so yeah, but, but until, when until, was this? Till, uh, till about 1700. You could, it was a pound of silver, an actual yeah. pound of silver. Mm-hmm. So from that point on, from the days of Isaac Newton to now, uh, the guys with the money printer, whoever they were at the time, have been able to steal 330, <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's do the math correctly, 319, 320s of everyone's mm, everything. Yeah. For that amount of time. Well, so it's worse stolen, than that. Yeah. They've stolen uh, like 99.7% of everything then, since y- then. Yeah, but it's worse than that, Canute, because... Of course um, it is. Because look, here, this is... Um, oh, no, that's not a real one. That's a fake one. Ah! Was that a pound, pound yeah. cash? So pound this, this is a gold sovereign that I'm holding up, Victorian gold sovereign. And that would be a bit less than a quarter of an ounce of gold. And it's about the weight of a, of a two PP piece or maybe a 20 centime or whatever. I can't remember what money you use, but, but it would, it would be way, way about a, it'd be way about a quarter, a bit yep. less than a, a US quarter. And that was the pound coin. Uh, from 1816 through till 1914, the sovereign was the pound coin. All right. And to buy one of these now costs you about 420 pounds. <laughs> yeah. It costs you about 420 pounds to buy the old pound coin. Yes, there you have it, people. <laughs> You've been robbed. Yeah. And I wonder what happened in 1914, eh? Nah. Yeah, <laughs> it's they the French, the uh, uh, Germans and the English all came off the gold standard to print the money to pay for the First World War, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, and the the expression was the war will be over by Christmas. Everyone thought the war would be over by Christmas, and it would have been over by Christmas if they'd stayed on the gold standard because there was not the gold to pay for that war to go on for the extent that it did. It was only coming off the gold standard and then issuing shitloads of debt and printing loads of money that enabled that war to go on. And like, if you look at the beginning of the end of Europe, it was basically then, maybe a couple of years earlier. Yep. But that's when like, we were the greatest place in the world. Western Europe was the greatest place in the world until about 1910, 1911 you know, the center of innovation, invention, everything. And like that war killed us and I, we've never recovered from it, basically. And it was a purely creation of fear. In your mind, is that war still ongoing? The Great War? Is it a war between the governments and the people? Is, is it as simple as that? I, I, I hadn't thought of that, but I, I guess you could look at it like that. I mean, Europe, Europeans have always been fighting each other, but What's so funny is when we're at war with each other, we're all still trading with each other at the same time. Like, you know, often the two armies are trading stuff with each other. And, um, but yeah, I, I guess so. I, I think we've got, you know, Christians and Muslims have been fighting since the invention of Islam and we're still at it. Y- y- you know, we're, we're, that's, that's, that's an ongoing war. 
But um, let's come back to metric because this is far more important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Back to metric. So, you know, the old measurements of the body are all based around the human body. Okay. Yes. Which is different from person to person. An inch would be a thumb. Uh, a, a hand would be four inches, four thumbs. You'd get three hands in a foot and a foot is a shoe with a boot on. And even though they vary from person to person, they actually don't vary that much. And the reason like a pound is a handful, like if you, like the most you can carry in your hand is a, is a pound of apples. It's just like the right amount. And the reason is we didn't have tape measures and all that years and years ago. So if you're quickly measuring something and a lot of the time you don't need a definite measure, you just need a rule of thumb. And, and if I'm building a house and I know, I know that this thing needs to be four hands long, it doesn't matter what your hand's length is. All that matters is what my hand's width is. And, um, and it's just so practical. And like bricks, for example, all bricks are a hand's width. And the reason they're a hand's width is so that a brickie, a, a worker can lift the brick. And, and so all bricks, even today, they're still a hand's width. And that's defined how buildings look. But in, obviously, the measurements were a tool of taxation. It's especially because you would be, you would measure your, whatever it is, your goods, and you would be taxed on a portion of that measure. And so in France, in the lead up to the revolution, you had every town had its own pint, its own, they, they all had their own different measures from town to town to town. And it was partly a way of defrauding the tax system, and it was partly a way of imposing the tax system. But it's why you get so much regional diversity in architecture, because every region has its own measurements. And time, it's, the time is the same, because, you know, we would think in terms of dawn and dusk, sunrise and sunset. We wouldn't think in terms of eight o'clock. And it's only the leaders who are imposing national control who want to centra who want to uh, centralize everything and have one system across the board because it's easier to levy taxes. And so anyway, after the French Revolution, there was a bunch of French scientists, and they decided that instead of measuring things around the human body, they were going to measure uh create a system of measurements based around the world itself. Yeah, the circumference of the earth. Yeah, exactly. So it would be a universal system of measurements for the whole world. And so they, these two guys uh, were set, were given the task of um, measuring the, the width of the world. And, but they couldn't go from the North Pole to the South Pole. So they decided to go from, one guy went from Paris to, I think, Dunkirk. And then they were going to extrapolate it from there. And the other guy went from Paris to Barcelona and he was going to extrapolate it from there. And the earth is not a perfect sphere. So <laughs> exactly. They thought it, the earth was a perfect sphere, but straight away it's not. So the system is flawed. But I think I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but one meter was going to be one exact division of the, the, the radius of the earth. But anyway, the guy who had to go from Barcelona to Paris, he had all sorts of problems. 
he had this device for measuring distances. You would measure it between two heights. And, uh, and they thought he was a tax collector. So he was lynched and he was put in prison. Then they thought he was some kind of witch and he had a nightmare. And so he ended, he ended up faking the data, uh, to make it out like it was, uh, what he expected it to be. And they only discovered afterwards that he'd faked the data and they hit, they hid it. But they, so they actually got the measurement of the, of the circumference of the earth wrong. And they were out by about a mile and a half. And, um, so the, the, the meter is a fundamentally flawed measure. It's based on a flawed measurement. And that's how metric came around. But it's a, basically metric is a tool of control and a tool of taxation. Yeah, but nowadays it's not it's not defined as anything that has to do with the Earth's circumference. It's just uh, how how fast something travel, uh, how far something travels. Yeah, it's based travel on some event. ludicrously. But they've kept the old meter. Yeah, yeah. So the meter is the same, but now they've said they've worked out the speed of light. Yeah, and 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 they've said it's one two hundred and forty millionth of whatever it is. And there's some sort of ludicrously precise, incomprehensible figure that defines a meter. All right. Uh, well, good arguments. I, I only have one question. I, I have to say, if, if I did a lecture, it's, it's not fresh in my mind, but I did a lecture about this. Um, and if you go on YouTube and you type in uh, Dominic Brisby Weights and Measures, you'll find my lecture and it lasts about an hour. But it's, it's really, really interesting. And it, of course, like a lot of the stuff I put on the internet, it's criminally under-recognized and hasn't had nearly the amount of views that it should have. But it's a really, really interesting. We suffer from the same problem. But yeah, but the, but it's really, really interesting. And I urge you, if you're interested in this subject of measurements and the history of measurements, watch the lecture and, and it's a good way of spending an hour. Yeah. So, so only one question about this, uh, Dominic, and that is, do you know why a penis can never get longer than 12 inches? It becomes a foot at that point, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, is that the joke? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Because, because then, it, we, we, then it becomes a story. Okay. I'll get you. I'll get you. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to get all life love. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Death. Yeah. Yeah. Because then it becomes a foot. Okay. Fair enough. This is a good point to give the mic to Luke, I think. Oh, God. So the. Yeah, right after right after the joke. So the so the French couldn't figure out the circumference of the earth, but the the Egyptians could make it so that the Great Pyramid was exactly one forty three thousand two hundred exactly of the circumference of the earth. It's it's uh, mind boggling that the French fell so far from the ancient Egyptians. Well, yeah, and I think light travels at one foot per nanosecond. So actually. The and and it's it, it it turned out that the imperial system was actually much more accurate. Um, and in America they don't call it imperial. In America they call it English weights and measures. But if you look at traditional weights and measures as a system, it makes no sense because it's not it's not a system. It's all ad hoc. It's a, it's a constantly evolving market process that's a, you know, you're just building on the wisdom of your forefathers and as stuff becomes irrelevant, it gets discarded. So once you try to analyze it through the prism of a town, of a planner and a system, it makes no sense. And you have to realize it's not a system. It's an ongoing process. Makes sense. Yeah. So, so maybe they take us in a, a slightly different direction because uh, I, I think. 
Uh, well, yeah, I guess maybe even just one comment on this is it's got a lot of parallels, right? That it's it's bottom up versus top down, right? Central planned versus just let the market do its thing. Yeah, there's a lot of argument to that. Is there is there uh, maybe a devil's advocate argument there that that uh, metric has has simplified uh, some things, like for example, that the the kilometer makes calculating distances. Uh, simpler if you if you have it in the multiple. Can I add to that, Luke? Because it's not the metric system; it's the SI system that that binds all of the units together. That's that's the real uh, benefit of of uh, conforming units. So it's the kilo, and it's the, you know lumen, and it's all, all of these other units that that have a system together. Yeah, except that in the SI system, they've abandoned the liter because it was in a, inaccurate as well. And they've just quietly dropped it out of the SI system. So what is it now? You remember? I don't know. I think they do it in because a, a liter was supposed to be um, one tenth of a cubic meter or something like that, and it just isn't. So anyway, they've abandoned it. But um, the there there is a beauty to it. It, it like you, you'll have to look it up, Canoe, because I, I can't remember the details. Right. I just know it's flawed, and they've dropped it. All right. Um, um, metric is a beautifully simple system, dividing everything by 10. And decimal uh, mathematics only really came into being maybe 50 or 100 years before the metric system. And we, we're so used to thinking in tens and decimals now, and especially with computers and so on. You know, computers decimalize everything. But they don't think in decimals. They think binary. Okay, but you know what I mean. And whereas before... We would think in twelves and you know sixteen eight four two one they were all ways of quickly dividing things um if you've got a piece of cake, if you imagine a piece of cake uh it's hard to divide a piece of cake into ten, but it's easy to divide a piece of cake into sixteen because you halve it, you halve it, and you halve it again, and you've got sixteen equal pieces yeah that's a piece of cake all right but the 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 other the the other beauty of metric. It is a, it is a, it is a, well, the, even though the fundamental measure was flawed and I was being just slightly contrarian because I was, the actually, it is actually a beautifully simple system metric and it extrapolates, uh, so that, you know, you, you, you can't use the human body to measure light years, for example, or nanoparticles. Um, whereas metric you can because it, it, it extrapolates down and then it extrapolates up. So, and, and you do need one universal system, uh, of measurement for science. And, um, you know, there have been cases where, like, there was a famous incident where a plane crashed because, uh, one, they filled it up using, thinking they were using gallons and they were only using liters or something like that. And so the plane didn't have enough fuel and it crashed. There was a spaceship too. Like uh, one yeah. of the NASA spacecraft. That's right. it's, yeah, that's true too. So the thing is that if you go into even deeper on this, like mathematics itself could have been simpler if we had twelve in the base. So so if the zeros were added after twelve, so sort of like so so we counted from zero to twelve instead of zero to ten, because because twelve is divisible by divisible by both two and three, which ten is not. So, so that that would have made more sense. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, 
Anyway, uh, and uh, this is also to to say it's like, it's sort of like HTTP four, which became the the standard of the internet. Uh, even though it was not perfect, it's good enough. So people, and then you get the network effect, and then people start using it. I guess it's the same with the metric system after it was introduced. So it was flawed, but it was good enough to replace the old system. Well. Everywhere that adopted the metric system did so after some kind of political revolution. Yeah. The the change in measurement system was always preceded by some kind of political event. And and it's thought that, you know, the new regime wants a new beginning, so they change the system of measurements. But the only countries in the world with strong enough national cultures to resist the onslaught of metric are, are the US and I think Burma and the, uh, the, what do you call it? Myanmar. And I think it's the Philippines or somewhere else. There's like three countries in the world that still use the old system and good for them. Yeah. And of course we should all be driving on the left side of the road as well. Right. Uh, probably. And, and ban blenders in bathrooms so that you have one for cold and one for warm. I mean, blending them together makes absolutely no sense. Isn't that the case? the world, the world was a better place when the British ran it. That's all I'm saying. Um, guys, I'm I'm going to have to go because I'm I'm running out of steam and I've just got off this plane and I've got to unpack and do all that shit. Well, thank you very much for doing this, Dominic. We, we're going to round it off here somewhere around here anyway, and we appreciate you coming on a lot. Uh, looking forward to seeing you in uh, uh, in uh, uh, away from keyboard next time. Uh, and uh, are you coming to Madeira? What's going? I, I don't even know what what it is. What is it? Bitcoin Atlantis. That's a like the conference to go to this year. Look it up. Bitcoinatlantis.com. When is it? First uh, to third of March. Uh, I'm not going to be able to go. Oh, that's a shame. Bitcoin Atlantis sounds great though. Yeah, it's 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 going to be big. Absolutely, Madeira, my dear. You really have nothing to fear. Um, <laughs> thanks very much, guys. I'll see you soon. And can you, will you, if anyone uh, l- likes me, can they sign up for my, um, like, I, I have I have a comedy newsletter, which is frisbees.news, frisbees.news, and I have a sort of serious financial newsletter, flyingfrisbee.com. Well, Dominic, thank you so much for your time. And we'll we'll have to bring you on another time to talk about some of the things you've been doing more recently. We've kept you on the tax and the metric stuff, but it was a pleasure. Thank you for joining us and take care till next time. Good. Good luck and good luck finding Finland. <laughs> thank you so much. I do my best every day. All the best, man. Cheers, folks.